So today we are continuing our, our way through the, the book of Galatians, and, and we're making our way into chapter 6, so the, the final chapter of the, of the book of Galatians. So if you, if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn there to the very end of Galatians chapter 5. Uh, also, if you don't have a Bible with you, you, you can find this on the, the Pew Bible that should be near your chair um, somewhere. <laughs> uh, and it's, this is on page 975 in your Pew Bible. And if you have been with us throughout the, this entire book, you'll know that, that Paul has a very intentional flow of thought through all six chapters of, of the book of Galatians. Uh, he's, he's concerned because these Christians in what is now modern-day Turkey were essentially walking away from the message of Christianity. And so he wants them to return to this, this central message. So he talked about the authority of the message, that it didn't come from Paul, it didn't come from any man, but it came from Christ. And that was chapters 1 and 2. And then 3 and 4, he said, what, what is the message of Christianity? But it, it's the fact that we're not saved by the things that we do, but we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But that was a very doctrinal section, a lot of, of ideas about who God is and how we're saved by him, which and we've been trying throughout this, this series to bring out the practicality of that in every message. But Paul, in, in just the flow of his letter, anticipating that people would, have, would sit down and read it from the beginning to the end, probably how the letter would have been read in the early church often, that by the end he starts to arrive at these very practical, nitty-gritty kind of instruction. And, it, and so it's a really, it's a neat thing to think about how, how sometimes we think of theology, of doctrine, of being abstract or, or impractical. But Paul didn't see any kind of divide between the things we believe about God and how we're saved and the practicality of how we actually live. But those two are, are wedded together. And that's what we are beginning to see in this section of Galatians. So again, turn to the book of Galatians chapter 5. Uh, and then we'll begin in, in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we pray that as we move through this passage, that, that it wouldn't be our thoughts, Lord, that we wouldn't misread or, or misinterpret what you were saying uh, through the Apostle Paul. But, Lord, we would really see what is here, and we wouldn't just bring it in our head, but we would bring it into our hearts, Lord, and that you would apply it throughout the week to each of us. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you'll see here in, in, in verse 25, um, Paul's saying that, talking about living by the Spirit. And, and so essentially being spiritual people. 
And, it, and I've been thinking about is just if you were to walk out onto the, to the street and ask people what they think of when they imagine a spiritual person and just think of the kinds of mental images that would come into your head, I think that, that many people wouldn't envision somebody who is intensely relational when you think a, a spiritual person, that they wouldn't think of the, the mom with a bunch of screaming children or the social time after church or dinner with friends or just being around the, the water fountain at work. They would say, oh, those are just kind of ordinary day-to-day things. But what we sometimes envision for a spiritual person is somebody who you know, retreats into nature and is with nature or somebody who is um, meditating or, or doing yoga or a theologian who's surrounded by books and engrossed in, in his studies. And, and so that's what it is to be truly spiritual. And even throughout the, the history of the church, sometimes people have moved into the mindset that the really spiritual person is the person who retreats from other people. I mean, even as the, the Roman Empire was, was crumbling in the early church and people were saying, what's happening with the world? That there was this movement of people saying, let's just go out into the desert and just be alone. And that's going to be the best way for us to, to serve God. And it was the beginning of monasticism, of people becoming monks. And and I, I came across this funny quote from, it's a sayings of the desert father. So this is early church, people were going out to the, to the wilderness. And it says, Arsenius, when he was still in the palace, prayed to God saying, Lord, show me the way of salvation. And a voice came to him saying, Arsenius, flee from men and you will be saved. And he, as he left for the monastic life, he prayed again saying the same words. And he heard a voice saying to him, Arsenius, flee, be silent, pray always, for these are the roots of sinlessness. So, you know, very different view of salvation than we've been seeing in, in the book of Galatians. But it, it's saying, you want to be sinless? You want to be a true Christian? Flee from man. Go out into the, to the wilderness. Take a vow of, of silence. And, and I think that as, as we reflect on this in our own life, that might sound really good to some of you, that probably the more introverted among you say, yeah, the spirituality of, of going out by myself, that sounds great. Uh, but then potentially some of the more extroverted will say, well, I don't know about that. I, I love being around people and the, the energy and the, the nitty gritty details of, of life together. So, so look again, though, at verse 25. Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And so when we're keeping in step with the Spirit, is this, this kind of introverted thing where we go out by ourselves? Or is it an extroverted thing where we're with others constantly? Well, as we, as we move through this passage today, what we're going to see is that for Paul, Christianity, the, the life of spirituality of living in step with the spirit of God as believers is is both introverted and extroverted simultaneously and and so we could say that our call as as believers in Christ is to be intensely relational while also being deeply introspective and so we'll we'll walk through this um, together in, in two sections and so we'll look at three calls three extroverted calls of the Christian life. And then we'll look at three introverted calls of the Christian life. And we see both of those here. 
So let's begin with the, the, the first section. So it's these three extroverted calls of the Christian life, ways that we should be looking out for those around us. And the, the first uh, way, the, the first introverted call, or sorry, extroverted call, um, actually sounds introverted at first, but we'll see that it's actually not, that we should avoid conceit. That's the first extroverted call. And look at, at verse 26. Paul says, let us not become conceited. And so we, we can understand that just on the surface. All right, don't be conceited. In the original language, it literally means having an exaggerated self-conception. So what he's saying is, is don't, in your, in your life and walking with the Spirit, have this exaggerated self-conception of who you are. But then immediately after this, he shows that the extroverted results of being conceited. That, that it begins to impact the way that we are around others. And, and so look at, at verse 26 again. He says, let us not become conceited. And then the result of that would be provoking one another. So, so he's saying that somebody who is struggling with conceit inside, as they're relating to others, are going to be just provoking them in all kinds of ways. And of course, all of us have, have conflicts with people uh, and not all conflict is bad. There's times where we're called to enter into a type of conflict. But there are times where, where we see, maybe in ourselves or in others, this kind of expertise in provoking other people. <laughs> where, where we're constantly picking fights. I mean, it could be a theological fight, a political fight, or just an attitude of wanting to always be right or kind of always get our way. And what Paul's saying is that that kind of attitude that provocation that we see in our lives, it can actually be an evidence of this conceit in our hearts, this exaggerated self-conception. And so we need to, to very much be on our guard against this in our relationships, because we may not think that we're conceited, because that's one of the ironies of conceit, is it's hard to see, and, and that conceit veils those who are conceited, because that's the nature of it, right? Uh, but one of the, the evidences of conceit is, is this trail of conflict and, and provocation that goes behind us. And so if we're, if we're seeing that, we need to be asking ourselves questions. Where are we with the Lord? But then notice it's not just conceit that, that, that conceit leads to provocation, but there's another result. So look again at, at verse 26. He says, let us not become conceited. First result, provoking one another. But then the second result is envying one another, that the, the heart of, of conceit is going to be envious towards those that it sees. And I'm sure that, that I'm not the only person here who struggles with, with envy in, in different ways. Uh, but one way, and it, it was, as I was working on this passage this week, I, I looked at Facebook and I saw a friend of mine from seminary had uh, recently published or <laughs> edited a book, and I think it'll actually be a pretty influential book. And so I was excited for him, but there's, of course, this little part of me that thinks, oh, man, I wish I had done something important, too, you know, and even though I'm so thankful for where the Lord has, has placed me. And, and so then I, then I got, went back to working on this, this passage, and I thought, oh, that was, that was envy. And so what, what's underneath that? And of course, it's, it's conceit of of thinking, oh, I should be the type of person that should, should do this or should get this kind of acclaim or whatever it is. And I think that, that we can all see that 
in our lives in different ways, whether it's our friends or, or coworkers. And so this, this is the why for, for my own life and my, my own heart, but also for all of you for Hope Church, that we would be a church that is full of, of humility, not conceit. And that what we'll see among us is not just people provoking each other, envying each other, wishing that we had the things that other people had, but that we would really be able to model the gospel and and caring for one another, this extroverted call to be in community. And, And really nothing strikes at the root of conceit like the, the gospel, the, the central message of, of, of Christianity, because the gospel says that every single one of us is conceited <laughs> on some level, that, that we're, we're self-absorbed, we fall short of, of God's glory, but that God, God loved us enough to, to reach down and to, to save us, and that we're not saved through the good deeds that we do, but only because of what he has, has done for us. So we have, we have no room for conceit, which then begins to undermine our, our provocation to others, which undermines our, our envy, which then creates this, this really beautiful environment for a community where people are knowing each other and living life together, where we're not provoking each other, we're not envying each other, but we're actually seeking to love and to, to serve others as Christ loved us first. So that is our, our first extroverted call to to avoid conceit and what flows from it. But then here, here's our second extroverted call in the Christian life, and it's that we should restore others in gentleness. Look at verse 1. So Paul, just before this, said, don't do this, don't be conceited, don't provoke others, don't envy, and then this is what we should do. That he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so j- just notice what, what Paul's saying. There's a, there's a lot going on in this verse. Uh, that Notice what he is not saying. He's not saying that when we see people transgressing, any transgression, falling uh, into sin, he doesn't say that we should just ignore it, that we should just uh, kind of turn away and say, well, I don't want to get involved, I don't want to be judgmental, it's none of my business. That's not what Paul's saying. But he's also not saying that we should be these extroverted busybodies who are just constantly trying to get into everyone's life in unhelpful ways and and gossiping and and going to our friends and saying, oh, did you hear what what so-and-so did? Or or we hold some sort of bitterness or, or spite against other people or we just put a, the scarlet letter on them and want to, to shame them for the ways that they have fallen. That's not what Paul is saying. But notice what he is actually saying for us of how we are to, to serve others. He, that he wants us to restore people who have been caught in transgression. And he wants us to restore them because we will be caught. I mean, it's the nature of sin that if we're in it long enough that... The old saying, your sins will find you out, that, that it's, it's true. It's, it's the way that, that the world works. And so when we're caught, that we, we need to be restored. And, and the, what he's saying here, and, and I, this word restore in the original language is the same word that's used for mending something. Or when the disciples were mending their nets in, in the book of Matthew, it's the, it's the same word that they're restoring their nets. Or it can also be a, a medical term where they're, 
putting a bone, dislocated bone back together, or you're healing somebody's body in some way. And that's what Paul's saying is that when people are tra- caught in transgression, when they're caught falling, that we should mend the, the broken net, that we should reset the bone, that we should have this sort of ministry and, and love for one another. And this is really what, what Jesus is talking about in, in Matthew 18, very famous passage where he talks about how we deal with conflict in the church, that we, we first go to somebody individually. If they, if they sin against us, we, we don't go tell our friends. We don't go put it on Facebook, but we, we, we have a conversation. And, and Lord willing, that there will be a restoration of the relationship and a restoration of that person that maintains their dignity. But if that doesn't work, then you bring one or two along with you um, and, and continue to engage. And if, if that fails, it eventually becomes a matter for the, the whole church. But I just always think with, with this pattern that Jesus lays out that if we followed that, imagine the gentleness, imagine the kind of community that, that, that a church would have if people really actually engaged with one another and sought to restore each other out of love rather than just kind of cutting off the relationship, that it would spare the church so much grief if we actually obeyed our Lord in this way. But even as we're restoring others, notice how Paul says that we should do it that we should restore transgressors in a spirit of gentleness, that we don't do it harshly, we don't do it vindictively. And in some ways, if we're going to be engaging in others' lives and and having that kind of contact with each other that Jesus says we should have, it's almost better just to not say anything than to approach harshly um, or vindictively. But our call is actually to, to engage with one another, but in complete gentleness. And we have such a great pattern of that in the, the Lord Jesus Christ, because each of us, we are transgressors, <laughs> all of us, that, that no one has a, a sort of uh, monopoly on, on transgressing God's word and his law. And, and so when, when God catches us in his in transgression, which he, he will, that as we repent and we trust in Jesus, that, that he restores us, that, that it's the work of restoration. That's what Christianity is, is about. It's about God restoring transgressors to himself, and he does it with this complete gentleness and love. And so as we experience this in our own hearts, in our own lives, what we're called to do is take it to then the, the people around us and show that same sort of desire to restore that which is lost and to do it with, with gentleness and love. And, and this is what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says that through Christ, God reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. So you can see what Paul is saying, that, that we, we have been reconciled, that God has gently restored us, mended the nets of our life, reset the bones of our life. And so we're called to, to model that to others when we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, the, the ministry of restoring those around us. So that is then our, our second extroverted call in the Christian life, that we restore others in gentleness. But then here's the, the third extroverted call that we should bear one another's burdens. Look at verse 2. Paul says, 
bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is the, the law of love. And so the way that we fulfill the command of love is by this mutual burden bearing in the church. And of course, each of us, whether, whether you consider yourself a Christian, whether you don't consider yourself a Christian, we all have so many burdens in so many ways. We have the burden of our sin and, and the ways that we fall short of God's glory. We have the, the burden of just life, whether it's job loss or debt or just economic hardships that come to us. We have the burden of, of sorrow that comes through maybe the way we've been sinned against, the things that we've experienced, the loss of loved ones through death or divorce or abandonment. We have the uh, burdens of, of relationships, people in our lives that, that we can't just let go of the relationship, but it's hard and we don't always know how to interact with somebody or to treat somebody or go forward in this relationship, whether it's a parent or a child or a friend or a boss or a, a co-worker. And so, so we take all of the burdens that are in our lives and then we just try to stuff them deep down inside of us. And we say, I'm not going to, to share this burden with anyone. We even say, oh, I just don't want to burden you with, with all of my problems. Uh, but, but really what Jesus says, and, and the reason that he gave us the church, is he gave us the, the church to help carry burdens that are too heavy for us to carry alone. And really that's only possible if we have a, a kind of community where we actually are restoring each other in gentleness, right? Because you don't want to share your burden with somebody if they're going to destroy you harshly. But with that, that culture of, of bearing burdens that we actually can share, this is the way that I'm, I'm struggling. This is, these are the things I'm going through and have that sort of mutual care among us. But it, it's only possible if we actually know other people, if we're actually in relationship with others. And that's why gathering for worship is so important, why even our, our coffee time after the service is important. That's why Connect Group is important, where we're living lives uh, side by side. And it, it's not that we just, well, now we'll have our burden sharing time, but just as, as you live in close contact with somebody, you start to know, okay, these are the burdens that they carry. How can I help bear that burden? They know the burdens I have. How can they carry that? And we, we support one another, care for one another. It, it even happens in just organic friendships where you invite somebody out for coffee and you don't say, well, let's get together and bear burdens together. But you just get together and you talk. And, and then naturally what happens for believers who are filled with the Spirit uh, and walking the way of the Lord is that this, this inevitably follows that we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And of course, what we can actually do that because that we, we're not the ones bearing the burdens, ultimately. That, that Jesus is the one who, who takes our burdens. That's what the cross is. It's Jesus dying for our burdens so that we can have life in him. So when, when other people are taking our burdens and we're taking theirs, we're not the ones who have to bear the weight of those things. That we actually have the strength to bear burdens because Jesus is the one bearing it for us and actually making it possible. And so that's why it's, it's not possible outside of Christ for us to have this kind of community. So really, those are the, the three extroverted calls that, that we see here, that to avoid conceit and all that flows from it, that we should restore others in gentleness and that we should bear each other's burdens. 
But now let's, let's turn to the, to the other side of the coin. So yes, there, there's the extroverted side that we're engaged in our, each other's lives, we know each other, we're bearing burdens, we're listening, we're, we're caring. But there are also introverted ways that we're called to, to live. And we'll look at three of those from this, this passage. And here's the first introverted call that we should keep watch on ourselves. Look again at verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And even in the, in the original language, that last sentence is actually, it's all one sentence, that they broke it up into two sentences, but it's restore others in a spirit of gentleness, comma, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be, be tempted. And so, so what Paul is saying is that, yes, we, we care for one another, we restore others, we're, we're looking out for others who may fall, but don't lose sight of where you are as you're ministering to other people, that, that we keep watch on others. And, and it, it's, a, it's a direct command, and he's saying that we need to have this, this watchtower in our hearts, that we set up the, the watchman to, to say what's going on. We have the security cameras going on in our hearts. We have the, the guard posted there, because if, if he's not there, we're going to get into trouble. And that's what Paul says, that, that we should keep watch on ourselves, lest you be tempted. Because every single one of us is going to be tempted in different ways. And so if we're not keeping watch on ourselves, examining ourselves, that we'll be the ones who need to be restored in gentleness. And of course, there will be times when, when others will restore us. But he's saying, just be careful as you're ministering to others, that you're watching yourselves. And there's a number of ways that, that we do this, that we, we watch ourselves. We watch ourselves through, through knowing scripture. I mean, that, that as, you, as you read the Bible, study the Bible, apply the Bible, you're, you're saying, okay, where, what am I doing? And is this lining up the things I'm believing, the things I'm loving, the things that I'm, I'm living for? Are those consistent with what God says in his word? We keep watch through, through prayer, that we, we're praying for ourselves, for, for others, knowing that God works through prayer. We keep watch through repentance, where we, as we even do in our service, we confess our sin together. But throughout the week, we live lives of repentance, where we're, we're always looking, yeah, this is, like I, I mentioned this week of, of my envy of, of my friend saying, yeah, I need to repent of that. And as part of keeping watch on our souls. Uh, but also we, we keep watch of ourselves through the kind of accountability that we put around us, where we, we, we need people in our lives who will also keep watch. Because we, we know, if we know ourselves, we know that we can't do it all on our own, which is, again, part of the reason we have the, the Christian community, why we have the church. So that's the, the first introverted call of the Christian life, that we should keep watch on ourselves. But here's the second call. And it's related that we test our own work. Look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one of us test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And that's a little confusing at, at first. Uh, 
the, these verses, but what Paul's saying, it's related to the conceit. He's saying don't have this exalted view of ourselves, thinking that we're something when we're not, that, that in and of ourselves we are nothing apart from, from the grace of God. But what he's saying is that we should be testing our works. And, and I love the word test. That he, I mean, think of other things in, in the world and society that we test. You, scientists test certain theories and see how things behave in different circumstances. Um, companies might test their card to see if it's safe. And so we also are, are testing our lives. We're, we're taking what, what we do and we're putting it against scripture and we're testing it. Where do we, where do we fall? And, and as we do that, we're looking at it for ourselves in, in scripture that, that if we put ourselves next to the measuring stick of scripture and if we fall short, we don't then despair and, and, and look at others and envy and say, oh, I wish I was more like that person. But we, we turn to the Lord and, and know that he will work in us. Or if, if we put the measuring stick there and say, you know what? I think I'm actually faithfully doing this thing uh, to the best of my knowledge that we don't become proud and puffed up and again, look at others and say, oh, okay, I'm doing better than you. But, but what Paul says that, that the reason for boast will be, boasting will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So that's then the, the second introverted call of the Christian life, that we test our works together. But then here's the, the third and final introverted call, that, that we bear our own load. Look at verse 5, the, the final verse of our passage today. For each one will have to bear his own load. And I don't know if you thought this when I read it earlier, Wait, what? <laughs> we each one has to bear his own load. Didn't he just say a few verses before this that we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ? And here he's saying, no, you bear your own load. So is this just a contradiction in scripture within just a couple of verses? And, and Paul's not contradicting himself, but, but he's showing different kinds of burdens, different kinds of loads that we bear in life. That yes, we bear each other's burdens. We share our needs. We, we care for one another in the church. But there are certain burdens in life that no one else can bear. And I mean, you can think of your walk with the Lord, where you are before the Lord, that when you come to the, to the day of judgment and you stand before the Lord, that, that no one else is going to be able to, to bear the burden of your responsibility before God. No mere man is going to be able to do that. But yet, of course, we, we know that, that there is one who, who can bear our load, can bear our burden, and that, that person is, is Christ himself. Because if we, if we look at this and just try to, to bear all of our loads ourselves, we're going to be crushed, that our burdens are going to just drag us down into death and, and despair if we try to come to it ourselves. But the good news of, of Christianity is that, that Jesus is, is the, the, the God-man who entered into this broken world to take our burdens upon himself. And, and you can think of uh, the, the story of Pilgrim's Progress, uh, where he has this big burden on his back, and then he comes to the foot of the cross. And when he comes to the cross, the burden falls off of his back, rolls down the mountain, and into the tomb. And that's what happens to our burdens when we, we come to Christ. But then, as Christ takes our burdens, he then gives us burdens that we can actually bear and carry in life. That we, and that's what Paul means when he says that each one must carry his own load, bear his own load. 
And I think you can think about this kind of like the camping trips that I took as a child with my family. We, we, we camped a lot, and my dad would always carry pretty much everything that you needed to survive in the wilderness. He'd carry the food, he'd carry the tent, he'd carry... And as a little kid, I still had a backpack, and so I would be given certain things for, for me to carry uh, along the path. So I would carry my clothes or a few things, and it always felt so heavy that I'm carrying this incredible burden uh, woe, you know, woe is me, and so tired. But really, somebody else was carrying the true burden, and I was freed, actually, to carry a burden. Um, and, and that's the way that it is with the Lord, where, where Christ takes our burdens on himself. But then he gives us burdens to bear that are actually burdens we, we can carry, and he's not going to give us burdens that, that we can't, even though it feels like, and the burdens can feel feel heavy, but then he gives us the grace to sustain it. And so even the places where others cannot enter into this place, that Christ is there and he has us. So we have this, this introverted call, this extroverted call, and ultimately we see both of those calls, this, the introverted call, the Christian life, the extroverted here in, in the Lord's Supper, that there, there's an extroverted part to this meal where we look around and we say, these are the people that I, I need to love <laughs> to care for. I'm bearing the burdens of the other people who are taking this meal. And Lord willing, they're bearing my burdens. That, that as you take this meal, you're looking around at others and you're saying, these are people that I might catch in transgression someday. <laughs> in small ways and potentially in big ways. And so we come to this meal to remind us of, of the the union that we have in Christ, that just as there's one loaf, so we, though many, are, are one in Christ. And so to be preparing ourselves in that day to bear the burden in gentleness, because this is the, we, we commune together here.